You are listening to The Depression Session at 99.1 FM Downtown Radio. Each week, we'll have a new guest tell the story of their depression. I'm your host, Laura Milkins, and thank you for joining us on The Depression Session. Just a note for my listeners, I want to make sure you understand that this is a show about depression, and some of the content can be triggering, so please take care of yourself if something on the show brings up difficult feelings, and seek professional help if you need it. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to The Depression Session on Downtown Radio. Today, we have with us in the studio, Jane Litcher. Jane is a teacher, environmentalist, and socially active woman. She's also my mom. She was on the show last year at this time, so I thought it would be nice to have her on again today. We'll be right back with Jane, but first, let's talk about giving. One of the things I've been thinking about lately is happiness in general. Depression, happiness, how those things balance out. Sonia Lubomirsky's The How of Happiness talks about kind of the relationship of what determines happiness. There's a genetic set point, which is about 50% of your happiness. So if you are somebody who genetically is set up to struggle more with depression or your brain chemistry, you, you, you don't really have control over that. You can take medication and do things like that, but there's kind of a set point. So something wonderful can happen in your life and you go way up in your happiness and you're going to come right back to your genetic set point. There are other things that determine your happiness. One is life circumstances. So where you live, how you live, how many kids you have, cats, dogs, friends, your, how much money you make, your job, your house, your car. But that's only 10%. And studies have shown that like we put 90% of our effort into this 10% that we can't, doesn't really affect very much of your happiness. We put a lot of thought into like, oh, if I could only make more money or if I could get that promotion or what if I got the perfect job, people think this way, but it really only determines 10% of your happiness. Whereas intentional activities are 40%. And she lists 12 different intentional activities that you can do that improve your happiness and really affect it. One is gratitude, optimism, to avoid overthinking, acts of kindness, nurturing relationships, having strategies for coping, forgiveness, resiliency, savoring joy, commitment to goals, spirituality, meditation, exercise. These are things that you you know make you happier, but, but aren't necessarily the ones that we focus on culturally, at least in the United States. It seems like we always put effort into like, if I could only get the new iPhone. <laughs> I'm pretty aware that giving and acts of kindness are important to me. I know it's something that influences my happiness level. It's something I've given a lot of thought to and something I get from my mom actually sitting right across from me. And I know it's important. I know it feeds me and I know it's something that, that has helped with my depression. My profession is a giving profession. Teaching is falls into that. I like to help my friends with projects and things that they're working on and all that sort of stuff. The problem I have is how to balance that with taking care of myself, because I find that I commit myself to doing all sorts of stuff that are, that are wonderful and exciting and provide opportunities and help somebody with, you know, like Dan has a conference coming up. Oh, yay. But I I can overbook myself to the point where it's no longer adding to my happiness. It's a stress. (laughs) I have too many things and too many commitments and too many things that I promised to do. And I want to help everybody with everything. And I forget to take care of myself. So I'm trying to find some balance between 
the things that add to happiness and, and look at the other ones. What is my level of gratitude, optimism, not overthinking, which is a hard one, nurturing my relationships, which doesn't happen when I'm so busy that I don't have time for it. Having forgiveness, savoring joy, commitment to my goals, spirituality, meditation, exercise. If I put all this energy into just doing the giving part, I'm not doing those other things as well. And I've been thinking about that a lot and how to find balance with that and how to be nicer to my mom because <laughs> I'm not stressed <laughs> and taking it out on her. So I'll just end with a quote by Booker T. Washington. Those who are happiest are those who do the most for others. Today, we have with us in the studio, Jane Litcher. Jane is a teacher, environmentalist, and socially active woman. She's also my mom. Hello, Jane. Welcome to the Depression Session. Hello, my dear girl. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm so glad you're willing to do this with me again, you know, a whole year later. Well, I'm happy to be back and, and to be doing this again. I, I feel as though I've made some strides in my quest to deal with depression in a more effective way in the last year and most particularly in the last few months. And so it's kind of nice to come full circle and be with you and be able to talk about it. It's funny because we struggle together. It's wonderful to have somebody who understands what I go through, <laughs> my genetic set point. And I would say I'm actually a pretty happy person. Even with depression, it's funny. It seems like there are two sides of the same coin, but I don't think there are. I think they're slightly different. I can feel depressed and have grayness to things and have lots of moments of happiness or be content with my life. And I think I almost, almost think that depression and there's a difference between happiness and truly experiencing joy and fullness. The depression takes some of the fullness of life away for me. I can see how you'd say that. I, I feel as though we don't give ourselves an opportunity to really appreciate what's going on in our lives. You were reading the steps that this, what was that woman's last name? I couldn't <laughs> pronounce it to save my soul. Luba Mursky. I think that she included all of, all of the things that I would include. And the coping strategies are fine, except that I found that I was using them as tools and levers, but I wasn't embracing them and taking them in. I was trying to fix things by doing little, little jigs and fixtures to make things better, and they would give me temporary relief. An example is if I exercise every day, I always feel better. There's no question. It lightens up my life. After I exercise, I can, I can lie on a, a bed or sit in a spot and I can feel lightness and joy and, and I can absorb it and I feel meditative. It's a great time to meditate. And I noticed that, Laura, I'm interested, you do yoga afterwards. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I imagine that enhances your experience. It, it, it does. It's the kind of last thing they mention, which is spirituality, meditation, and exercise. For me, they come all together. There was a moment where I realized that every exercise I love is very much about breath and internal quiet and almost a repetitive kind of meditation. So I love lifting weights, which is 
you know, and you, and you really move it and it's your body doing these very simple things that are repetitive. I love that. I love running. Running is this, you get to a rhythm and a pace and everything in my head shuts down and quiets. It goes then, with your heart. It does. And then when I'm done with those two activities, I like to do yoga and I like standing poses. And while I'm doing them, I actually visualize light and love and goodness coming in, like in the form of light, just like clear, pure light coming in and cleansing my body. And I do a meditation while I'm in the pose, which helps me stay longer in the pose. I imagine, you know, kind of blackness and negativity being drawn out by magnets. It was a practice that I learned from a workshop and I really like it. And I do it while I'm doing the yoga. And when I'm done, I feel like I float out of there. When I'm doing those same practices and I was really depressed, it did alleviate, but I just went back to my set point of depression, I feel like. Well, I almost feel as though we're on this kind of rubber band thing or like a bungee cord that that puts us back in the spot where we started, except that I feel that I've expanded the cord and moved out from always bouncing back into shoulda, woulda, couldas, and like self-doubt, and my low points. I don't have to listen to those voices anymore that are the judging voices that I have from my youth and growing up. My parents were lovely people, yes, both were. of them. <laughs> and I had, a, I had a fine upbringing. But along with that, there, there were always the tensions of being the first child. Mm-hmm. And it, your parents have so many expectations for you, and they're, they're tense and nervous and anxious. And you, you can internalize all of that. And first children tend to be quite sensitive to other people's uh, feelings and emotions, and I think it's probably partly due to the fact that their parents invest so much in them when they're tiny. I don't know if that's true. I haven't read that anywhere. This is just a Jane assumption about life and living. When I think about anxiety, I have anxiety that that goes way back, and the biggest part of anxiety is trying to accomplish too much for me. It's wanting to do it not only well, but perfectly. And it's taking on more than I personally can entertain. And when Laura was talking about happiness and handling all that stuff of helping people, I'm very empathic with people. And I, I can sense a lot of, um, of people's joys and sadnesses and highs and low points. And I become overwhelmed. And I'm learning finally to step back from it and guard myself against getting too involved with what other people are doing. Because I'm fine as a helper doobie. You know, I'm a good little worker bee. You know, if somebody gives me a job, I just chug along and do the job. But if I'm around people who are depressed and anxious, I'm likely to become that way myself. And I have to back off from it. It's part of, of my wellness campaign. 
And it's something I've only learned to do recently. And I feel much more calm in my, I feel it in my heart. I know that sounds kind of sappy, but I feel it in the center of my chest where it tightens up when you're feeling bad. Mine is expanding and I can let my wings go. I can, I can back away from the computer screen and reach out and reach back and almost touch my little wings in the back. You know, the ones that you stretch out when you reach behind you, because you should do that often, because we all sit forward way too much. It just feels expansive and wonderful, and I feel the light come in more and more. And life, life is good. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, Jane, Mom, tell us the story of your depression. Well... I don't know how to describe my depression, except that what happens with me is that when it's dark out, I feel the grayness creep in like fog rolling over everything. And I'm I'm disinclined to want to go anywhere. I'm disinclined to ask for help. I don't reach out which is, for me, is an important thing. I'm very social. If I lack the social uh, aspect of my life and become isolated, then I, I'm into overthinking, not being grateful, not nurturing my relationships, and certainly not savoring joy. I feel like curling up in a fetal ball, lying in bed and pulling the covers over my head. That's an image that people often use, but it's real. I don't want to go anywhere, don't want to do anything, and I want to eat chocolate. And that's pretty much that's pretty much how my depression is. It's overwhelming, and I feel inadequate in it too as well. I know I should. There's that should word again. I should be doing something. And I could do it if only I got out of bed, if only I left the house. But I don't feel brave. I don't feel forthright. I I feel like just staying home. This year I have made a pact with myself to take a couple of things each week that I'm a little bit afraid to do and do them. And if I don't do them that week, it's okay I can forgive myself because it's a journey and it doesn't have to be accomplished all in one time frame because the time frames have killed me in the past. Wanting to get everything done by a particular time on a particular schedule, yes, sir. And some of that goes to having had a Martinette kind of a father who wanted wanted everything done on time schedule. When we were driving to Pennsylvania, my my little sisters and I, he had our bathroom stops timed. He looked at the um, turnpike in Pennsylvania and announced that we couldn't stop until it was 17 minutes from now because driving at 60 miles an hour in the snowstorm, we couldn't stop until we reached such and such a Howard Johnson that was a certain distance away. It had nothing to do with our internal organs. It had everything to do with him having to control everything. Well, of course, I'm a product of my environment, and I have always wanted to control and fix. 
And you know what? I don't have to. It's not a requirement. I can allow myself to go at a pace that works for me, that makes me feel strong, capable, and good in this world, and in which I can be helpful to other people because I'm not helpful to anybody, including me, when I'm depressed. And that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for your story. What I, I wanted to ask one thing because I have prior knowledge of you, <laughs> <laughs> which was there. We have these great Christmas plans, and you went to Mexico with my brother and his girlfriend and family. And when you came back, you expected to have your car here or have my car here, but I'd taken my car keys with me. And so I was in Baltimore and you were here for a week. We thought you were going back to Phoenix and you'd have your car there and blah, blah, blah. So I remember when I, when it happened, I felt a little bit bad, but I also thought, well, she'll work it out. And Dan said, aren't you worried? And I said, no, she'll be fine. And it, when I came back and we talked about it, it sounded like it was actually a breakthrough moment for you. Was that true? Can you share that a little bit? About doing things that, that scare you? And- well, that's <laughs> part of, that was part of it. I We live in a neighborhood that it's fine to walk around in the daytime most of the time, but we've had, uh, I had somebody take a house jack and try to lever uh, the window in my bedroom and open it up. Yeah, when I first moved in, they, the, the somebody tried, I put new bars on the windows and somebody actually tried to take them off. And they weren't successful because they're brand new. The policewoman said, just plant something back there. You'll be fine. The thing is that that and the next door neighbor telling me that he had been beaten up a couple days before in the daylight in the morning when he went on a walk made me terrified to go take a walk, to go over a couple blocks to the drugstore. And then I thought, I'm not talking to the right person. So I talked to another next-door neighbor who's a very positive person. He said, I'm sure you can walk as long as you go down the main drag. Why don't you go at lunchtime when there are lots of cars around? So I walked over to the drugstore. It may sound like a silly little thing, but, it, you know, I'm, I'm 74 years old, my God, and somebody, I guess, could hurt me, although I don't look my age and I'm pretty strong. Anyway, I'm being silly here, but... I took a thing at a time and worked on it. I started doing things while I was here alone on a schedule, too. I'd been on a weird sleep and wake schedule before, and I made myself go to bed earlier, and I made myself I put the alarm on so I'd get up in the morning, and I tried to eat well. When I was alone before, I had been eating all kinds of sweets and things, and just that doesn't do well for me at all. I don't know what changed. I just know that that I had to slow down and look inside myself and try to figure out what, what was going on that made me so anxious all the time. And being alone meant not only I had, did I have to use my own resources, but I had to stop spinning my wheels and and look at what's, what was really going on inside of me. One of the things that we talked about afterward was that you realized that when I'm here, you rely on me 
for maybe a sense of security. I'm not sure. But that when I'm here, you rely on me. And when I wasn't, and you realize that not only were you here by yourself, but you didn't have your car, that you realized you have all these resources here already. Yeah, that's you true. People. That's true because I I did I reached out to a bunch of people. Yeah, because one of one of the things that's frustrating between us when you're here is I feel kind of obligated, like oh you're here to visit me and I should spend time with you and help you with stuff. It's that giving thing, and then in return you do all sorts of things for me while I'm here, and it's this it's a funny thing that's kind of normal and natural of kind of taking care of each other a little bit. But then suddenly I wasn't here and I don't know I, my, what you told me afterward was that you realized that you would be fine whether I was here or not, which is a different experience of living here than being here as my guest. It changed my outlook on being here to, to being a mature capable person as opposed to being a somewhat dependent individual who had to ask permission. There's another uh, aspect of it. We butt heads over things. And, and I was afraid to make mistakes and to do things wrong because you would react to them and you do react. Mm-hmm. I do. I'm like, why is this here? And I'm, I'm like, it's there because I put it there while I was doing this instead of, ah, I'm scared. She's jumping on me. I'm feeling really timid. And anyway, I did a lot of things on my own, and I, and I, I realized I should be seeking people in my own age bracket as well because I've been, I've been hanging out with Laura's friends. Uh, now, her friends range in age upwards to almost my age. So it isn't really a big deal, and and I'm not ageist, and neither are they. I could use more people in my general age bracket. For one thing, it makes me feel terrific because I'm in really good shape, and, <laughs> yeah, and it's like, oh, right, I'm so fortunate that I've got these wonderful genes. Aren't I lucky? <laughs> I don't mean that uh, in a, in a sense of of being vain. It's just, it's just a kind of a gratitude thing. It's like when I'm with people my own age, I realize that I'm I'm really lucky because we we got healthy genes, no question about it. We were given a really nice set. It's pretty hard not to be happy about that. Although brain chemistry, I wonder sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I do too. You know, underneath everything though, with depression and it all, you and I both have always been optimistic people. You know, and way back when, when they came out with that glass half empty, glass half full thing, I could answer that question in a heartbeat. Because no matter if I felt bad, I always felt that there was spiritually, there was something good intrinsically in the way the work, the way the world runs. And, you know, hard not to... uh, Hard not to have joy in that. And and whenever I talk to somebody who's more skeptical or has an attitude of like, well, that's Pollyanna or that's naive. I get naive sometimes from people. What I think is it's a choice. I can live optimistically in a world where people are generally kind 
and 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 hopeful and helpful and well-meaning and who cares if it's true or not because my experience of everything will be coded with a feeling of well they must not have meant that really if they if something is negative i give it the benefit of the doubt and it doesn't matter if they were completely malicious and ill-intentioned because my experience of life always ends up being more positive because I look at it that way. So I get a full, rich experience of something while somebody else may be looking for, you know, all sorts of negative things all around them. Everybody's against them and things are difficult and it's always a challenge and nothing is fun. Well, that's how you're going to experience it. It may not change at all what happens to you in life, but having that perspective for me makes me more resilient. I can, can ride out bad times because I think, well, this is just a phase. Life is generally good. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and she said, so we live on this social media of Facebook and, the, and Twitter and the other accounts. She said, I am going to post nothing but peaceful, joyful, loving, happy information. I'm going to put little jokes that make people smile. I'm going to put cute little animal stories. And I'm going to put sayings that make your heart sing. And she said, I'm not going to respond to any of the rhetoric that that any of the political sides are dealing with or the doom and gloom about where our nation is going. And she's been doing that. And I enjoy... It's kind of part of my morning happiness thing is I kind of enjoy looking at her posts and then I pass one or two of them on occasionally too. I think we all have the opportunity to be the best we can be. That's, of course, a tired old saying, Mm -hmm. but it's the truth. You can choose you can choose to be miserable as well as you can choose to be not happy. You can't be happy every second. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you can feel light and joy in your heart and in your soul. You can feel it in your inner being. And I guarantee you, if that's how you feel, you will radiate it out and other people will be drawn to you because you have that feeling in you and because you're a positive person. Well, and given that half of the pie is your genetics, and 10% of it is your actual circumstances, it seems like the research also tells that to be true, that your point of view on things is the thing you have the most control over and makes the biggest impact, not where you live and how much money you make and what kind of car you have. And now this is stuff that you know shows up in movies and shows up in books, and there's always this message, is a cultural message we're always telling ourselves, But I was happy to see that there's research to back it up and also that it isn't naive. It's a life approach that allows you to weather things, even depression. And and I know there are times when we all feel hopeless. In the worst of depression, it is a hopelessness. It's a bottom of the well feeling. But to be able to tell yourself the shoot too shall pass and Being able to believe it might be another thing, but being able to tell yourself, for me, that helped me to say, I'm depressed. Be honest about it. I'm depressed. I'm down in the well. And I haven't always been here. If you hit your bottom, 
they say in all of the 12-step programs, if you hit your bottom and you have nowhere to go but up, then that's the time when you can reach out for help in shifting your attitude. And that's why those those programs work, I think, is that built into them are ways of uh, working on your your psyche, your your inner workings, so that you look at yourself in a more positive way. It's a perfect moment to end the show on that note. Thanks, Bob. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being on the depression session. I want to mention again that if you found some of the content of today's episode triggering, please seek professional help and call 911 if you feel like hurting yourself or others. I'm not a licensed therapist, and this show and the station are not endorsing any remedies or products. The purpose of this show is to destigmatize depression through storytelling. You can find a link to mental health services on downtownradio.org on the About KTDT page. To listen to the podcast, or if you're interested in being on the show, contact us at www.thedepressionsession.com. You've been listening to The Depression Session on Downtown Radio Tucson with music by Septahelix. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at The Depression Session Podcast. Thank you.